Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fulian Rosborn and this is Inside Exec. We're continuing our discussion with Marty Strong and this week we're going to look at visualising and being a visionary in an age of optimization, as well as the difference between teams and committees. One of the questions we sent to you was about being visionary and it's being visionary when that is at odds with the culture, which we've kind of talked around about. Uh, is there anything else that we need to talk about on that particular topic? Well, you know, I think, and we're talking at a very high level here, the C-suite and all that, but this whole mindset, this visionary kind of thought process can occur at much, much lower levels. It can be a department head, a division head. It doesn't have to be at the very top. As a matter of fact, for a company to truly be able to achieve any of the objectives, you better hope that everybody all the way down all the various strata in the organization are kind of tuned into it and aligned with it. You know, in the military, they have this thing called commander's intent. And essentially, if you have a squad of 10 people, they have to take an objective that's critical to the whole battle. Every one of those 10, regardless of their rank, knows that that's the job. They have to do it. So if the officer drops, the senior enlisted guy drops, Everybody just goes, we, they know the mission, they know the goal, they know the objective. And you don't see a lot of that single-minded strategic focus, probably because companies make either don't do strategy or they make strategy way too legalistic and complicated. Nobody understands the gobbledygook that, that they're reading. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So my daughter, Tara DeLucia, she's, she's in the Sydney area. She's a, a dual citizen, uh, American, Australian. And so she went on and got her certification as a project management professional. And she's got a master's degree and some other stuff. So she was asked to come into an organization and take a look around and see how the whole idea, concept of project management might be applied. And in my talking with her, it it became clear that she wasn't sure that was a role for her at the level of kind of rank she was at, that she thought maybe somebody else should be handing her the the package, you know, the, the plan. And she was here visiting in the States last year. And I said, well, I don't think so. They asked you to look into this. They want your opinion. You get to be the thought leader here. You're the person with the credential. You're the project manager, you know, professional project manager. Forget that anybody else has an answer that, that you might violate or they brought you in for this purpose. So go yeah. ahead yeah. and apply your brain to it, which she did. And now, you know, she's kind of directing all that stuff and she's very happy with the outcome. But it was, it was actually a crisis of confidence that there was a place in the org chart where strategic thinking and visionary thought leadership stops mm. everything below that tear line you're supposed to be you know a, a, what we call in the US, u.s a nug you just kind of go along and do what you're told and nine to five and and uh and that's not the case anybody can adapt this approach this this methodology you can do it in your personal life you can do it in your professional life i mean if you don't know where you want to be personally, if you, if your family's kind of at a, at a crossing, you know, crossing on the road, you can do all these same exercises that I lay out in the book and think through it and say, what do I want the family to be like in, in two years? Where, where do I want us to be in two years? Where do I want my marriage to be in two years? Where do I want to be personally in two years? It's kind of strange, but most people think that that's something somebody else in some other job title are supposed to yeah. do for them. And that's yes. not the case. The visionary part of it, okay, we've identified that everyone's going to be visionary, but the culture of the organisation doesn't allow you to express that necessarily. Do you take a stand? Do you say, okay, well, we're not going to go anywhere unless we start thinking this way? And what's the first step? That's a great question. I just sent my third business book proposal to my publisher on Saturday. I'm writing 
but I sent the, the proposal and in the very first chapter, I'm, I'm telling a story about me shooting my mouth off as a young seal, telling everybody every idea that popped into my head and the results, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which was you're 18 years old. You don't know anything. You've never been anywhere. You don't have any rank. You don't have any authority, you know, shut up. And okay. You know, I, I was new. And then a couple of years go by and I get a little bit of traction and it really wasn't until I learned a different way to communicate my ideas that I saw real traction with my ideas. And this is something that most people hate to do, but it was, you had to put it down in, on paper. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. Me standing there, you know, like a little spider monkey, you know, telling somebody what I think about everything in the world and what should be right, what should be fixed. That immediately invokes a natural social and, and personal or interpersonal reaction, especially if you're talking to somebody whose idea you're criticizing. And so somebody came along, heard an idea of mine and uh, said, hey, because uh, I spent half of my 20 years as enlisted and then half as an officer. This comes from when I was enlisted. He said, that's a great idea. You should write it down on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. I go, well, I'm not going to do that. And he said, well, let me show you something. So he pulls out, I mean, next day he comes up, and he, he pulled out a couple of pieces of paper and they were just typed. It was typing in those days. And it was one full page. And he said, these are called um, thought pieces or point papers in the military. It's one point, introduction, issue, problem, challenge, solution. That's it. Like a real three, three step, boom, boom, boom. And why don't you put your idea in that format on a piece of paper like that and give it to me? So he did. And then he kind of sponsored the idea. Now, this could blow up on you in that they could take your credit for your idea. If you care about the credit more than you care about influencing, then that, then you got to think about that too. Yeah. And the idea was accepted. And it actually had an impact on the SEAL team I was in. And that was the first time in my entire life that my brain had actually caused something to happen like that, mm. right? And then the light bulb went on. It's everybody's going to want to react personally and emotionally to an idea. If the idea has any kind of change element in it, they're going to see you as a threat. They're going to see the idea as a threat and they're going to personalize it. And you're going to get personally upset about them personalizing it. And what you normally do is you either reject that and get even more volatile or you just clam up and, and for the rest of your life, you never bring up another idea. And, and that's, that's sad, but it's true. So I think that the resistance is always there. I think there's a proper way to overcome the resistance. I probably wrote four or five more papers like that. And it's also the reason, one of the reasons I became an officer, because I realized that I could take an idea Later on, I was I was taking an idea or sometimes somebody else's idea and I was fleshing it out in that same format. So I realized, okay, it's not just my brain. If I could pull together a brain trust and we could still get it down on a one one page set of circumstances and and a um, an idea, a recommendation for, for solving it. Then now you're reaching out and you're empowering the whole organization, you're pulling in more more brain cells. And that was really interesting to me and, and I really like that. So you anybody can do that in any organization. What I'm not going to tell you is that everybody's going to accept your ideas, whether they're mm-hmm. they're written in Shakespearean prose or in prey on it. It's not that they're going to, just because you use that process, you're suddenly going to become accepted and your ideas are going to become wonderful. But listen to the feedback when you do get resistance. Listen to what they don't like about it. Listen to, because you may be a little bit overzealous or you may be actually don't know anything about what's really going on. And listen to what they say and come become a little bit smarter then do a little bit more research the next time, be a little bit more grounded, but don't stop. It comes back again to process. So having a process in place, whether it's you personally or the organisation, that you've got a process mm-hmm. for delivering those ideas, those visions that fits with, within the framework of, of where you are. 
The next one is about nimble teams, which is sort of an extension of that. It's about nimble teams in a highly structured work environment, which we thought you'd be able to talk about. (laughs) Well, teams are interesting. Lots of books written on teams in the 80s, Mm. you know, lots and lots, lots and lots of books. I read all of them. I thought, okay, you know, this must be something I need to read, even though I was in a place called the SEAL team. I didn't realize that the SEAL teams were much more of a team than the teams that I was reading about Mm -hmm. in the books. What I've seen, and other writers have have made this observation besides me in recent years, is that most teams are really committees. They're just a kind of a loose group of people that have been put together, attached to a certain task or topic. And that the, the main difference between a true team and a committee is the level of accountability, the consequences of failure. For example, in a SEAL team, If you like an SAS team, if you fail and you're in a small team of five, 10, 15 people, people pay the price in blood, right? You know how, what the stakes are. If you're on a football field or you're on a rugby field and the team loses, the whole team loses. You all get a zero up there or you all, you know, all get a loss, an L on your record. It's not just two people. Everybody does. So if you have a team and if you fail, the team doesn't get fired or demoted or anything, you really have a committee because they're not going to suffer the downside of failure. And again, most teams are not incented or rewarded to have any kind of upside related to success. They're told that this is like a new social, not new, but this is a reinvigorated social mechanism to get more people in the room. And then they bring in a bunch of people in the room that are all the same kind of people in the room. They're all the accountants are in there trying to figure out how to come up with something. They don't stick a marketing person in there or one of the cleanup crew from the night before mm. who have completely different points of view or completely objective to whatever they're studying. Quite frankly, in a good brainstorming session, might point out some things that don't make any sense to them. And all of a sudden you realize they don't make any sense to anybody. Yeah. That's the problem with teams in general. So for a team to be nimble or agile, that team has to be composed of individuals who are agile and nimble in their thought. They have to be adaptive. They have to be flexible. Be visionary. I talk about how to kind of go after the vision, turn the vision into a concept, concept into a strategy. And the the concept of strategy development, I refer to a group I call the dream team. Those people in your organization that are nimble thinkers. So you create a team of these people and you have them flesh out the concept. You have it use whatever you want to use to format it into an actual business strategy. Then you find all those people that are naysayers and risk mitigators and, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of people. And you hand it to them. They say, go ahead, punch holes in it. Yeah. Now, it doesn't take any courage to do the first thing. It takes a lot of courage to do the second thing because that second thing is you're saying there could be something wrong with it. And I know you don't like this kind of, this kind of thing. You don't like doing this kind of thing. If you like this, if you don't find any holes in it, you're part of the changes coming and you don't want change. And you don't have to accept everything that they see and say, but you'd be amazed if you do this process frequently enough, you got two teams, one's nimble and visionary and very flexible and all that. And you get what you need out of that team. You have another team that's very focused and very linear and very kind of risk adverse. And you get what you want out of that team. So you can construct teams for different reasons. And you should really think seriously about what you want them to do. And then who are you putting in there before you just call a group of people a team? I really like that approach. I I can see how that would change the dynamic of of any idea so well because we're immersed in this culture of we'll put a project team together, we need 
all these different people and I can see for the most part there's one I'm involved with at the moment that is most definitely a committee and will never be anything else because there's only one visionary there and the rest of them are the naysayers. So <laughs> it's not the right group for me to be with. I, I'm going to encourage our listeners to really listen to that bit and think about it and think about it in terms of their organisations because the opportunity is there for you to have much better outcomes for the projects if you think about this different approach don't just have the project team have a couple of teams have the visionary team have the naysayer team let them point the direction of, that the project should be going so thank you for that that's been really sure legendary can i add to that is that by doing that you're actually Everybody, no matter what the outcome is, everybody feel they had a say in it. That gives them ownership, whether they were for or against, by having it the way you described it. Then they all say, well, I had the opportunity. And yes, it gone through or it didn't go through or whatever, but I had the opportunity to give my, to have my say. By doing that, you're also working on the organisation culture. So the culture is then known to everyone that we value input, we value um, people saying whether they agree or disagree, and, and we involve the, the whole organisation, not just a select few. Yeah, you get empathy if you're in, intermingled with people from other parts of the organisation that you don't normally intermingle, intermingle with, yeah. because you start to see what the world looks like through their eyes. And you it's not just your group and your team, your cell, your department that's that's having to yeah. suffer the slings and arrows of business. Everybody's got, you know, something they're working on. It's that's difficult. On that note, we'll take a break in our discussion with Marty Strong. Join us for part three. For now, I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne and this is Inside Exec. <laughs> 